Hello and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I'm your host because Steve Harvey is busy with the family feud. In this episode, we will be discussing foster care and placement of foster children. Before we begin our episode, we love to start with a disclaimer because what's more fun than not claiming something and disclaiming it, in fact. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia, and it is provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guest are attorneys and non-attorney advocates, the information presented is legal information, and it will not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams. I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Amy Goddard. Amy works in our Clarksburg office in the in a, as a foster uh, care attorney. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Clint. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, so you work in the Clarksburg office. What do you do around Clarksburg for fun? One of the things that we really like to do is go to trivia. They have some teen trivia um, at local restaurants here and my family, including even my my littlest one and friends go uh, just about every week and do some teen trivia. And do you teen trivia? How's that different from regular trivia? Well, just it's a group of people, you several people working together. Um, it's not like individuals against each other or like maybe at a restaurant where you'd have like a little screen and be doing it like that. It's read aloud and you turn in answers. Sounds like fun. So let's talk a little bit of business. Let's talk shop, if you will. Now, you uh, work in our Clarksburg office. How long have you been practicing as an attorney? Um, Almost 19 years. And uh, what have you done primarily during your 19 years? For the last probably 10 years, primarily um, everything that I've done has been family law related. So um, now I, I work solely in the foster care system or with foster care, the foster care community. Uh, but I've also done custody, divorce, those types of things in the past. Um, but I've always been a litigator, meaning um, I've always really been in the courtroom representing people or representing companies. So when you're working with with foster care, that's a pretty complex system, uh, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. There's many sides of it, um, depending on the person that's involved in it. Uh, it's a very it can be very different. So I guess that when we talk about something that's complex, let's try to break it down. Let's start at the beginning, if you will. Let's say um, for whatever reason, there's a referral to CPS. CPS shows up at your door. They knock on the door and they say, we're going to take these children into state's custody. How does that process work? The way that that's going to happen or way that, that they're going to show up at your door is because a referral has been made, which means that someone has contacted Child Protective Services and told them that um, your children are being abused or neglected. So that's that's often going to be a, a police officer, a doctor, a teacher, or it could be a friend or family member uh, that has some kind of concern. And so they're going to, you know, they're going to make a call and say, we think this is happening. And then they're going to do an investigation. Usually when they show up at your door, unless it's a situation where, you know, maybe mom or dad were arrested. So we know that that circumstance is in existence. Usually they're going to come in and do an investigation before they're going to just take the kids. Now, do you have to let them in? 
because it has to do with imminent danger, that's the idea that they're going to investigate to determine whether it's an emergency situation or imminent danger. If you would refuse um, to allow them to come in, then they they will call the police and they can't come in. I mean, essentially, I guess it would be like probable cause if you were thinking of it from a, a criminal standpoint. But the you know, terminology is that there is you know risk of harm or imminent danger to the kids. So at the end of the day, CPS has the authority to make entry into your home and to investigate whether there are children in there who are are being abused or neglected. Absolutely. Now, when the caseworker shows up, do they always determine that there has been abuse when a when a caseworker shows up? No. Um, it could be a situation where they uh, want to just come in and look around. Maybe someone said that the house was in disarray and there was for whatever reason, what I hear commonly is that there's, um, you know, dog feces or terrible things like, you know, just the house is in terrible shape. It's not safe for the children. They may come in and, and none of that stuff is actually there. Or it could be a situation where they go and they take the kids and they interview them, um, which they do have the right to do. And it would be outside, typically the presence of the adult in the home. They may determine based upon that investigation that that nothing's going on. And maybe this is a situation where someone made a referral out of spite or overreacted. Amy, I will say the advice I give to my clients is if CPS shows up, invite them in and offer them coffee, right? Yes. And, and sit down, talk with them, answer their questions, be as honest and as forthright as you can. Yeah, be as cooperative as possible because the more that uh, the more defensive you are, the more that you fail to answer their questions, the more likely they're going to going to open up some type of a real investigation and remove your kids. Now, they determine, they, they look around, maybe they see something that appears to be unfit. Maybe there's not food in the refrigerator. Maybe the, the house has, as you noted, some, some sanitary issues, some things of that nature. They determine that they're going to remove the children. How does that process then happen? It varies to, to a large degree. The first thing they're going to do is find out, is there there's some close relative that they can call, you know, at that moment? So, you know, does grandma live next door or live, you know, five minutes away? Can they can she come get the children? Do you have a neighbor that you're very close with that could take the kids? Basically, the least amount of disruption possible, but still putting the children in a, in a safe situation while they continue to investigate. So that's really going to be the first steps. If there's not someone immediately available, then the child is likely going to go into an, an emergency foster care situation. So in that situation, they may be placed with someone that the children don't know or haven't had any relationship with. Right. Okay, so now CPS has removed the children. Do they have to file a court action? Do they have to justify this to a judge or anything? They do. Now, depending on what the situation is, so like I said in the beginning, if it's a situation maybe where, you know, mom and dad were found to be both passed out in the car with the kids in the backseat, that's going to be something where they really don't need to do much of an investigation. Those kids are going to be removed. Those parents are going to go to jail. And so at that point, you're going to file a petition alleging abuse and neglect and the child's already going to be in the in the custody of the state. But if it's a situation where they come into your home and they're doing an investigation, they may not officially we use the term remove your child. Um, even though they might be removed from their your home, they may not be removed from your legal custody, meaning you may retain, you know, keep your rights um, as their parent while they're investigating. So they can do what they call a safety plan. They'll determine that there there is an issue, but maybe this is an issue that can be corrected quickly and we don't need to take 
custody of this child. So they'll send the child with grandma, tell mom and dad, clean the house up, do this, you know, talk to everybody and maybe feel like it's going to be okay. So they can, for up to 90 days, put the family on a safety plan. And during that time, CPS is going to come in and monitor. So they're going to drop by unexpectedly. They're going to monitor visits with the kids. They're going to make sure that this is a safe situation versus just automatically taking these kids into state custody, you know, putting them with a stranger or taking, you know, parents' rights temporarily. Now, do parents have to agree to that or could they say, well, let's just go to court and see what the judge says? If they refuse to to comply or, or to um follow you know what's been recommended with a safety plan then they're going to file a petition for abuse and neglect now earlier amy you talked about how there'd be situations where uh, you know a, a parent may be passed out behind the wheel and that they're going to go to jail for abuse uh, or neglect of the children when you have an abuse and neglect action are there always criminal charges related no i would say at least with what i deal with more often than not there aren't about 75 to 80 percent of the kids that are removed are because of drug-related situations. So neglect of some sort that's coming from parents doing drugs. In those situations, they may enter a safety plan, and part of that compliance with that may include drug treatment? Absolutely. If it's a drug-related removal, um, then yeah, we're absolutely looking at, at some type of rehabilitation, depending on the extent um, or what drug is being used, probably also looking at some parenting classes, uh, things of that nature. If it's a situation maybe where, you know, mom and dad are getting evicted or are homeless, you know, they're, they're going to have to show that they can find a stable place to live, uh, hold down a job, those kind of things. The CPS, we talked about a, a parent could say, no, let's go to court and see what the judge is going to say. Does CPS required to give you a safety plan or can they go straight to court as well? They can go straight to court again, like we were talking about with, you know, someone passed out in the front seat or if they, you know, come to the house and they find bruises, you know, serious bruises or, you know, maybe a child's at the ER and the doctor reports it and the kid's got a, you know, broken arm that clearly came from abuse. Um, they can remove the child. And and the, the phrase imminent danger or emergency situation, if they believe that if they don't keep this parent away from this child, this child's going to get further injuries. So where do they file this petition at? Um, in the circuit court of the county where the child resides um, or wherever the child is removed, honestly. So sometimes that's that's a little confusing for people. Um, but you may not be, you know, in the specific county in which you live, but typically you would be. But they're going to file a petition with the court, um, essentially stating that there is some type of an abuse, abusive or neglectful situation and that the child um, is in some type of imminent harm. They have to, if they've already removed the child from the care, then they have 10 days from the date of that removal to have a hearing on that petition. So, Amy, what's going to happen at the first hearing when, when you first have the hearing after they filed an action alleging abuse or neglect? At that hearing, they're essentially going to come in and they're going to say, here's what we found. And, and the judge is going to make a determination of whether or not there needs to be an action truly opened. Sometimes they'll file a petition, but not remove the kids. And I know that's that sounds a little strange, but sometimes they'll file the petition because of certain circumstances, but just monitor the kids in the home. So maybe at this preliminary hearing, um, the court will determine whether the kids should remain there 
while this case is pending, even though they find that there is, you know, some type of, of concerning situation, or is it time to go ahead and remove the kids? So maybe there's been a safety plan, but they filed a petition and, you know, the court's going to order at this preliminary hearing that the kids be actually removed and put in temporary custody of the state. Now, do you have to have an attorney at that hearing? If you will be appointed an attorney. Now, typically what happens is as soon as the petition is filed, they will issue an order and the order is going to appoint counsel. It's going to appoint what they call a guardian ad litem, which is an attorney that represents the children only. You know, mom's going to get an appointed attorney. Dad's going to get an appointed attorney. So we talk about those situations where maybe you're a family member. What if you're a family member and you find out that your niece or your nephew is in is in um, foster care? What steps can you take then as a third party? The laws changed here within the last couple of years. Now, CPS is required within seven days of removal to compile an entire a list um, from speaking with the parents of any possible relatives or another phrase, and this is this is a fancy phrase, but they call it fictive kin. So maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend of the family. So they're not related to the child, but they have a close relationship. They've got to compile a list of those people to determine whether or not there's someone suitable. They really should be getting in contact with relatives, but if they don't, you're going to want to contact CPS. So when you're talking about an emergency situation, do you have to be an approved foster parent to take placement on an emergency situation? No. If it's a situation where they come in and they're going to remove the kids and grandma, you know, lives five minutes away, they may have grandma come and assuming grandma doesn't seem unfit, then grandma can take the child and they'll start at that point doing what they call a home study. So they'll start doing a background check, checking into things, making sure grandma doesn't have a criminal record, you know, so it can happen after the fact. You talk about that background check. What are some of the things that they're looking for there? If you've been convicted of a misdemeanor? Um, are you ad- automatically barred? If you're convicted of a felony, are you automatically barred? Felony is is automatically going to make you fail a home study, but certain felonies can be waived. If it wasn't, you know, a domestic violent felony um, or some type of sexual offense, then maybe it can get waived. If you had a drug conviction or a DUI from 10 years ago, um, those are often going to be waived. But if you had some type of you know, sexual related um, or a domestic violence charge, those are probably not and you're not going to be able to to have the child with you. Also looking at CPS history. So did you with um, your children have some type of substantiated abuse and neglect in the past? If you're going to get placement of the child, you can get temporary placement with just a a quick look and, and basically passing a background check. Do you have to be a certified foster parent to keep the child in your in your care if we're talking about a longer term situation? So certified is is kind of a um, term of art, I guess. So, yes, you're going to have to be able to pass a background check and at least determine that you're fit to have these kids in your home. But say there's something that's not going to be able to maybe the um, bedroom situation, say you only have you know two bedrooms in your home and the child's going to have to be in the same room or uh, sleeping on a cot in the living room. That's a situation where you can't necessarily become certified, but they can still determine that it's in the child's best interest to stay with you. And certified really, the focus there is on being able to receive financial assistance. So how do you get certified as a foster parent? 
if it's a situation like we've been discussing where you're a, you're a family member or some type of a of kin you know to the to the child then it's going to be dhhr cps that's going to do your background check they're going to come into your home and do a home study look around is everything safe this is a baby do you have a, an appropriate crib do you have a car seat once you pass the background check it'll move on and you'll have to do what they call pride classes those are courses that are offered generally online now it's just sort of a parenting class understanding of the system and then after you've done that you become certified so now you're certified as a foster parent. Maybe you've got a kinship placement. You've got your your niece staying with you now. Um, what's what's going to happen as far as the court process? We talked about the filing. There's an initial hearing that says, yeah, there's enough there's enough here to believe that this child is is endangered. So we're going to keep the child in this placement. So Amy, when you have that situation now, what's going to happen with the the parents of the children? So the parents, once they've had a preliminary hearing, and a lot of times they'll waive a preliminary hearing, and that is so they can go ahead and move on to um, receiving services. So what that means is, and, and sometimes it's termed an improvement period, but it kind of depends on the timing. So say you come in and you waive your preliminary hearing, your attorney can ask for a, this is lots of fancy terms here, but pre-adjudicatory improvement period. And what that means is before you are adjudicated or found by the court to be abusive or neglectful, they're going to give you a time period to try to get your act together. That improvement period, usually they're going to, it's going to be about six months and you're going to have to do things like we talked about before, parenting classes, maybe drug rehabilitation. If it's a physical or some type of emotional abuse, maybe some anger management usually going to have to have a psychological evaluation. Th those sorts of things are going to take place. You're going to have to show that you can get a job, that you can um, find stable employment. Typically, those kind of things are going to happen. And then with the, the placement where the child is, the child will just remain then with a kinship placement or even in, in foster care um, until something else is decided by the court. Is that correct? That is correct. And depending on the situation, the court may order visitation uh, with the family. Usually it's going to be supervised. Now, before you go to the judge, is there any kind of a group or a team that would meet to, to talk about the child? And, and, and what's that process look like? So in addition to any kind of court hearings that you're going to have, you're going to have what they call an MDT, which stands for multidisciplinary team, which I know is a mouthful. Essentially, that is kind of everybody that's involved in the case. The idea of that is to to do sort of the informal things outside of court, making sure that there is a plan. They're going to say, here's what the improvement period is going to include. They're going to have all these services. Here's when you're going to have to be here. Foster parents, here's when they're going to have visitation. Here's how we're going to you know, get them there. Here's how you're going to, here's the doctor's appointments you have to go to. Lots and lots of things are going to be covered during those meetings. And they're required to be by law every 90 days. Sometimes they will be more often. I mean, I think we all recognize that family dynamics can be complicated sometimes. Let's say your niece goes into foster care and, and you would like to get custody of your niece. But at the same time, there's maybe an in-law that maybe you don't get along with very well. And they also want custody of the, the same child. Um, what factors will the court look to whenever they're trying to determine where to place a child in a situation like that? Well, in West Virginia, there is a grandparent preference. And that means that if there is a grandmother, uh, gra grandmother or grandfather 
paternal, meaning father's parents or mother's parents, um, they're going to get a preference if they're found to be suitable. So if it's, you know, say an aunt versus a grandmother, the grandmother is going to get preference in those situations. Um, but say it's, you know, mom's mom wants the kids and dad's mom and dad wants the kids. That's really going to be a situation where the, they're going to have to look at a lot of factors. Um, so the bond that the that the grandparent has with the child, you know, and again, suitability is always going to be a factor. How can you get your story to the judge if you feel like the CPS is placing the child in the wrong setting? You know, and that's that's a really that's probably what I spend the majority of my time doing in my practice. There are a few different a few different things you can do. As I said, there there is a law now that requires CPS to try to find these family members. So if they just put this kid in foster care and they didn't do their due diligence, didn't really try to look for these family members, then then that is, you know, a violation of the law. So, you know, say that you are a grandparent and you've been calling CPS, you've been you've called five or six times and you've told them you want the child, but nobody is listening to you. Um, you can do a couple things. You can informally, if you don't have an attorney and you just don't feel like anyone's listening, you could write a letter to the judge, write a letter to the guardian ad litem if you know who that is, and tell them that, that you want to have this child, but no one is is returning your calls. But if you're concerned about, you know, kind of going that route, you can get an attorney um, and have, you know, attorney file what's called a motion to intervene. And what that means is you're filing a motion with the court saying, here's this case. My grandchild is in foster care. I want to have placement, you know, of them. But so far, no one's, you know, no one will start a home study for me. No one's doing anything. And then the court's going to decide whether or not to set a hearing. If you find out when the abuse and neglect hearing is going to be held, can you just show up there and ask the judge to, to, to give you placement? You could show up there, but these are these are closed proceedings. So only the parties to the case, the mom, the dad, um, the guardian ad litem for the children, if the children are old enough, you know, they'll be there. The prosecutor, they're the only ones that are going to be allowed in these hearings. Foster parents, by law, are supposed to be in these hearings. Sometimes judges interpret that law a little bit differently. But if you don't have custody of that child, you really have no right to be in that hearing. So you could show up. Um, you could ask the prosecutor, you know, can I come in? You could ask the guardian ad litem, can I come in? But you can't just walk into the courtroom and announce your presence to the judge. Now, when you're talking about these hearings, really, I think one thing to boil down is there's two things going on. And in most of these situations that I've been involved in, and practically all of them, right? The goal is to reunify the children with the parents. Would you agree with that? Always, yes. So then there's also, though, a plan B with the recognition that the parents may not be appropriate for reunification. And that's what we're talking about, um, the placements, uh, even on a temporary basis, but then a permanent placement after that, if the determination is that the parents are not appropriate. They call that contingent planning. The goal is reunification. The hope is that the parents are going to do what they need to do and we're going to reunify this family. However, this child is what's most important. And, and state law, federal law, everyone focuses on the best interests of the child. That's the that's the focus in, in all of these court cases. While you reunification is is the goal, the focus is always going to be on the child. So, Amy, what is the timeline on that? What are we talking about? By law, the way that the that the law is stated is that the 
state has to move for termination of parental rights if the child has been in foster care continuously for 15 of the most recent 22 months. The reason it's phrased that way is because there there are situations where children go in, they're reunified, they go back, back and forth some. So that's why it's talking about continuously. At that point, the there is an assumption or there is a presumption that that child needs permanency and you got you need to do something. It's been long enough. I would say that it's more common than not that it takes longer than that. There are various reasons that might happen. Lots of different things that, that may have delayed, you know, the progress that a parent could make. So they can extend it beyond that. They can give them more improvement periods if the judge deems it to be, um, they say, good cause. But that the law is at that point, 15 months of the most recent 22, that is when they're supposed to terminate and start really looking at where is this child going to be permanently. Now, when they terminate parental rights, does that mean that the parents will never get to see the child again? Or or are there situations where the parents can continue to have a relationship with the child? There are. And, you know, a lot of that determ- a lot of that depends on what happens. So if this is a situation where, you know, grandma or grandpa are going to get um, permanent legal guardianship, or they're going to get, um, they're going to adopt a child. In those circumstances, a lot of times there will be specific visitation granted, or it will just be at the discretion of the guardians. The parents may continue to see the child even after termination. Um, a lot of times when it's foster care and it's a foster parent, you know, not related to the family in any way, and they're going to be adopting those situations, usually you're not going to have any kind of like set visitation. Um, or set communication, but there still is likely to be a discretionary um, call on the on the adoptive parents' behalf. If they feel like it's safe, you know, for biological mom or dad to see the child, then they can allow that. Now, when we talk about you may terminate parental rights, does that always mean that the parent has engaged in some affirmative action, or are there sometimes parents that, that lack maybe cognitive functioning themselves or have mental health issues or things of that nature that that impact their ability to parent? Can their parental rights still be terminated? They can. There can be situations, and I've seen it a number of times, where you know maybe just mom and dad both function at a very intellectually low level. They don't really understand, you know, that they need to be changing a baby's diaper, you know, more often. They don't understand um, that they can't just leave the baby in the car seat for, you know, a day. Just things that we that most people take for granted, these parents may just really not understand. And and even with parenting classes and, you know, coaching and, and training, they're never going to be able to do this. So a lot of times what's going to happen there is they are going to be adopted. So we talk about adoption as one place where uh, foster children may end up at the end. Is that the only option where where they get to permanently stay? No, there's also legal guardianship. And you know, a lot of times this comes into play when you have an older child. So say you have a, you know, a teenager that has, you know, obviously lived with their family their whole lives and something's happened. Um, Usually it's it's a drug issue um, and this child's been removed. They may not want to be permanently separated from their family. In other words, they don't want to change their last name. They don't want to be legally adopted by someone else. They want the option um, of still having that connection with their family. Legal guardianship is is a good option there. And that essentially gives the foster parent or the kinship parent um, legal custody of the child until they turn 18. There are also situations where you may have, again, an older child um, 
that can't stay in a foster home. Maybe they have really significant behavioral issues, maybe even criminal, you know, type situations, um, or maybe they they have um, some type of disabilities, and they may end up in a long-term facility, you know, with with some type of residential treatment. Well, and there's also situations, particularly as you talk about some older foster children, where they're used to taking care of things. Maybe for a while they've been taking care of themselves and their siblings um, since maybe they were 12 years old or something like that. Um, and then you see those situations, it can be a difficult for them to adjust in a foster care setting where there may be some additional rules or regulations as well. Have you seen some of that? Absolutely. A lot of times when you have multiple siblings, you have the oldest child and um, even as young as you know, an eight-year-old could have been being the one that's feeding, you know, their baby sister, making sure that the kids are getting on the bus in the morning. Um, it's it's a lot of sad situations. And so it can be really difficult to get into a, a foster care situation where suddenly these parents are trying to, you know, tell the younger siblings what to do. And you know, the older siblings saying, wait, this is my job. This is what I've been doing. So, so that can be really difficult. And a lot of times that's going to be where you're going to have some um, you know, therapy for that child. You may be some family therapy that's going to you know, be both the the foster parent and the children to try to kind of change that dynamic. Now, are there enough foster families in West Virginia? No, not not even close. We have, I think, just under seven thousand children in foster care in West Virginia, and that's formal. So that you know, we we're talking about obviously the abuse and neglect system, but there are a whole lot of kids that are just informally living with grandma or informally living with a neighbor um, that CPS doesn't even know about. So. But we have about 7,000 in foster care um, and not nearly enough homes. So, you know, there's there's a real push for, you know, people to open their homes, you know, to be a foster parent. Um, and a lot of times the problem that we have is the older children. Um, you know, people are all really excited to have, you know, a baby or a toddler, but they don't want a 12 year old or a 15 year old. Um, or maybe you've got five kids that need to stay together. Who's going to take, you know, all five? And so these kids are going to have to be split up. Um, and if they don't have anywhere to put them, then they're going to end up in residential placement, which is supposed to be temporary. But there are a lot of children that that linger in these residential settings for, you know, months, years. What does that mean, residential placement? Group home. Um, you know, the old the old way that things were done would have been an orphanage. There aren't any orphanages anymore, um, but there are residential group settings. And sometimes that can be a children's shelter that is only, the focus of that is only for children in foster care. But those are supposed to be very temporary um, while they're looking for some type of other, you know, placement. Unfortunately, the shelters usually get overburdened and we see kids being sent to places that are actually for juvenile detention, not detention, but maybe, um, you know, maybe for kids that run away or having, you know, small offenses, but they don't, they are also housing children there that are just in foster care. And that's really, you know, a really unfortunate situation because you have these kids that haven't done anything wrong being thrown into these settings. Um, where they're kind of being treated like a like a delinquent. Now, what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a foster parent? Really think about it. Really talk to your your spouse, your family, um, especially if you have children. It's it's definitely not for the faint at heart. It, it is absolutely 
It is absolutely a wonderful thing to do and so, so, so needed. Um, but it's definitely not something that you want to go into without really understanding um, what you're doing. You know, you're bringing children in that that have been separated from their family. They're going to have issues. They may have, you know, this might be a child that was born addicted to drugs and they're going to suddenly require all of your attention. But if you are thinking about, you know, fostering, you know, and go into it with the idea that you're going to love that kid and you're going to bond with that kid. You know, a lot of people say I don't couldn't be a foster parent because I couldn't stand for them to leave. I couldn't stand, you know, to to love them and bond with them and then have them go home. But that's that's exactly what those kids need. They need to have that love, that connection, that that bonding, um, you know, during this time frame, because if they're in a residential setting or somewhere like that, they're not going to have that. And that's going to be even further damaging to the kid. Well, Amy, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and it, uh, I think shared a lot of important information and questions that our clients would have. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be on here. If you have the patience, temperament, and willingness to raise a child, please consider fostering a child or adopting a child through the foster care system. If you want to make a substantial impact on the life of a child, there are few ways that can be so impactful as to foster a child in need. Information on how you can become a foster parent is available at dhhr.wv.gov or by calling 304 558 If you are concerned about fostering a child who might be returned to their parents, consider adopting a child through the foster care program. There is a list of children available for adoption at the website dhhr.wv.gov. There may be financial assistance available to cover the cost of fostering a child, as well as subsidies to cover the cost of adoption. There are also tax advantages that you would have to consult with a tax advisor. But if you want to make an impact on a child's life, consider foster care. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.